Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. We are on location in Brunswick, Georgia, on the porch of my father's house, which is near Lover's Oak, which is a live oak tree that they say is 900 years old. This house, I think, is around 130 years old, and we're on the big veranda out front. The live oak trees around here are covered in Spanish moss, and it's a very, very humid day in December, abnormally warm for this time of year. And I'm speaking with Tim Kyes. Tim is a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds, which basically means birds of the coast of Georgia that we don't hunt or eat. Tim is an overall bird enthusiast and ornithologist. Well, first of all, thank you so much, Tim, for meeting with me on the veranda today and speaking with me on the trail as traveled. My pleasure. My first question for you is, where did you grow up and how was outdoor adventure a part of your childhood? I was actually born in London and grew up in England until I was about six. Some of my earliest memories are actually outside of London. We moved when I was five to the countryside southwest of London. And my parents worked basically from home on a large property, and we were basically feral. So we would be kicked out of the house in the morning, and uh, a little pack of us would just play all day in the, in the fields and woods around the house, which at the time seemed vast in retrospect going back. It was actually a fairly small little patch of woods. All of our adventures were imagined there. We, we built forts, we climbed trees, we fought, we ran around, we just had a great time in the outdoors. So that was probably my earliest memory of the outdoors. We moved back to the United States. My parents are both Americans. So we moved back to the United States when I was seven got to live closer to my grandparents. My grandfather particularly was very influential for me. He worked in a steel mill his entire life, but his passion was the outdoors and the environment and fishing and water conservation and land conservation. And when he retired from his job at the mill, he immediately threw himself into land conservation and river conservation efforts. This was in Massachusetts. He was always an example to me. We spent a lot of time outdoors, both in Massachusetts and in Vermont, where my family purchased, when my father was a teenager, about 200 acres of land in the Green Mountains in Vermont. And to this day, every day that I'm not in Vermont, part of me hurts inside. It's really sort of the center of where I feel like I should be. (laughs) And I ended up much later going back to school there. That's neither here nor there. But The outdoors was always a really important part of growing up. My father was interested in birds to a certain degree, particularly birds of prey. He had read all the 
books about the Montana wildlife biologists, the Craigheads, who would you know scale cliffs to get eaglets out of their nests and things like that. So that sort of interest was always there for me. But it was part of a much broader general interest in being outdoors and and being part of the natural world and enjoying hiking and biking and canoeing. And as a child, I didn't do a lot of overnight camping with my family because my mother wasn't all that into that. But all of our vacations were up in Vermont, away from people in the Green Mountains. It was really important in forming my later interests and passions in the outdoors and then more specifically working with birds. Tim, I'd like to know a little bit more about the East Coast. Specifically, you said Vermont is very close to your heart and you mentioned the Green Mountains. How do the mountains and the forests differ on the East Coast versus what we might find in Montana? They're very different mountains. I think of the Western mountains as being young and immature and undeveloped. The Eastern mountains have had many more millions of years to be worn down. So you might think of them as smaller and lower elevation and less craggy, ragged peaks, but it's just a sign of maturity and wisdom that they've garnered over the millions of years. I had actually a good college friend of mine and roommate from Montana, and his main impression of the eastern mountains in Vermont was claustrophobia. They're wooded mountains. They're tight valleys. He was actually from eastern Montana, where there's vast open spaces. And so to me, that's very natural, and there's a certain sense of being overexposed when I'm out in the vast western open spaces compared to the compared to the east. Clearly a lot more rainfall, a lot greener typically. If you're backpacking and camping in Vermont, you never need to carry much water. You're always going to come across a stream, whereas the backpacking I've done in the west often involves very careful planning of stashing water or shortening trips so that you can carry all the water that you need or really using some fairly dodgy water sources to take care of your needs when backpacking. So I think less rugged, although in Vermont and the White Mountains in New Hampshire, you still do get above treeline and ragged, rocky peaks, which are always fun to get up onto, but certainly less scale, less elevation. And typically you're closer to civilization for the most part, but there's some great places you can get in the Northeast and even in the Southeast in in Georgia mountains. You have no sign of villages or towns anywhere near. Uh, So you really do feel a remoteness there that's probably more typical in the West. We are on location on the Georgia coast. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. The Trail 1033's Locally Harvested Outdoor Adventure Series, and I'm speaking with Tim Kies. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. Tim, I'd like to ask you now about the epiphany that you had when you realized that birds was the way that you wanted to go. There are lots of interests in my life where I would have trouble pointing to a single epiphany. But with birds, there is a moment. (laughs) I was in college. I was generally, again, following my general passions for conservation, the outdoors. I was at school in Vermont at a small liberal arts college called Middlebury, and I was taking a semester off campus. It wasn't really abroad. It was only a few hours away, but it was at a small center called the Center for Northern Studies. And I I know the irony now that I'm in coastal Georgia. But anyway, it was a multidisciplinary program that covered anthropology and human history and biology and geology and basically circumpolar political issues. 
It was run by a really interesting guy named Steve Young, who was officially a botanist, but really just a very, very broad naturalist and really had a deep love for birds, particularly. Part of the program was going on field trips up to the Arctic. And so the first trip that I took with that program was up to Newfoundland and Labrador, so the Canadian maritime provinces. And we were learning all of our alpine plants, and we got out to the peninsula in the southeastern part of Newfoundland called the Avalon Peninsula. And one of the unique parts of that peninsula, these huge rocky cliffs that just drop several thousand feet down to the ocean. Along that coastline, there's these big sea stacks that are essentially isolated from land, and they were just covered with nesting seabirds. So we got to get fairly close to one of these big gannet colonies. And gannets are really impressive seabird. They've got about a seven-foot wingspan. They're pure white, jet black, and then their head has this sort of golden crown on them, which is just spectacular. And they're plunge divers, and they're seabirds that spend almost their entire life at sea, except for when they nest. And they tend to nest in these rocky, inaccessible places where there's no mammals that can climb up and predate their nests. So this big projection of rock literally looked like it was covered with snow because the birds were so tightly packed. When you got close enough, you could tell they were just far enough apart that they couldn't actually peck each other. But that was about as far apart as their nests were, so about a, a foot or so apart. And it was just a cacophony, just raucous screaming. There was just this unbelievable stench. If you've ever been near a big seabird colony, it's a wonderful, horrible <laughs> stench, but uh, kind of the smell of life. But it's a combination of regurgitated fish and feces and dead birds that are rotting. And just, it's a wonderful experience. Um, fortunately, I work with seabirds here currently so I get to experience that fairly regularly but that was my first experience with anything like that it just instantly caught my imagination and I was very interested in birds for that trip and then coming back my interest dipped a little bit I mean that was the big spectacle that got me hooked and then a few months later I was just looking out at some birds hopping around the ground in the bushes under a bird feeder and the birds were white-throated sparrows they're a common sparrow in the eastern United States and I actually looked closely at them for the first time and they were spectacular beautiful brown and white streaking bright yellow spot in front of the eye it's like wow you don't need to go to Canada to some remote location with some absolute spectacular colony of tens of thousands of birds you can just look out your own window and witness something really beautiful and stunning and and so that was sort of the second epiphany was that not only were, were these huge vast colonies really cool but you didn't have to travel far and wide to enjoy birds and to learn about birds and that was really the start of it and and ever since then that was college so that was 93 ever since then I've been doing something with birds in one capacity or other, whether research or teaching or management and biological study like I'm doing now. So one form or other, I've been hooked on birds ever since. Tim, now I'd like to ask you about a moment in the out of doors where you learned a lesson that myself and the listeners can learn from. Again, at Middlebury College, I was very involved with the outdoor club it was a wonderful, wonderful group of people who were passionate about the outdoors. We had any equipment we could want, we were able to get a hold of for camping and backpacking trips. And over the course of my time in college, friends and I were hiking the length of the Long Trail and, and the White Mountains and doing a lot of, of hiking the Adirondacks. We really got interested in winter camping in my sophomore year. 
And so we were starting to explore some of these mountains in winter, building snow caves and sleeping in the caves and leading freshman trips on snowshoes up through the mountains. One of the great hikes to do in the Northeast anyway in winter is the Presidential Traverse, which is a series of covering the Presidential Mountains and the White Mountains, including Mount Washington, which is the highest peak in the Northeast, and also some of the most extreme recorded weather anywhere on Earth, mainly because there is a weather station there that's been there for a while, but it does have legitimately extreme cold, windy weather. Four or five of us were doing this, and we were very well versed in winter camping generally, but really none of us had mountaineering experience, crampons, ropes, any of that kind of stuff. So we had snowshoes, had kind of little built-in crampons on them. And things were going great. We were having a good time hiking up the main trail on Mount Washington towards Tuckerman's Ravine, which I've been to a number of times to ski. It's this beautiful bowl that can get up to 100 feet of snow piled in there in a year, and so you can ski there well into the summer. And the trail that we had planned to take basically skirted the very top of that ravine before it kind of jogged up to the top of the mountain. And I was kind of in the lead with snowshoes with cheesy little crampons on the bottom of them and started heading out over the top of the ravine and very quickly realized that we did not have the right equipment. (laughs) A couple of slips and I never think was close to plunging off the the top of the ravine but it became very clear that we could if we continued on that route so we quickly reconvened and altered our route but we clearly did not have the right equipment or experience to do the route that we had originally planned i think the good thing was we were smart enough to learn or to rethink our plan before we really got into trouble but we were able to adjust our route and not deal with any really technical trail for the rest of that trip and had a wonderful trip but it was a humbling moment that uh, we felt very confident in what we were doing and then in a quick moment suddenly realized we really had no business being where we were with the equipment we had and the experience we had Uh, fortunately there were other options for us we were able to adjust but I know friends from college who were in similar situations who didn't adjust and ended up you know really getting into trouble getting frostbitten on trips when they really should have come in because the weather was too extreme so I think generally the lesson I learned was being sure that we were actually prepared for what we were doing but then also just having sort of a humility about us that we can back down from this adventure if we need to to live another day to have another adventure and so I think that lesson has served me well in the years since then. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled on The Trail 103.3, the community source for outdoor adventure information and inspiration. We're on location on the coast of Georgia speaking with Tim Kyes. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal, non-game birds. Tim is an overall bird enthusiast and ornithologist. When we come back, we're going to speak more about birds. But now, Tim, I'd like to play a song. Let's play a song that maybe reminds you more of your early childhood adventures. So this was a challenge coming up with important songs. <laughs> Definitely I'm a music lover and there's, there's a lot to choose from. But thinking to my childhood, I think of the records that I abused to death until they no longer work. And one was, you know, Shel Silverstein's Free to Be You and Me. And then uh, after that was John Denver, which is funny because I really stopped listening to John Denver for decades until... 
I got married and my wife is a crazy John Denver fanatic. The song that I liked as a kid was Grandma's Feather Bed, but in retrospect now, thinking back to a John Denver song that's more meaningful with my own passions, it would be Rocky Mountain High. It speaks to me in a couple of ways. Even though, again, we've talked about the difference between the western and the eastern mountains, I totally can relate to someone really identifying who they are with a place. In that song, obviously, it's Colorado. For me, it's Vermont. And again, you know, here I am in flat coastal Georgia. The highest point of land is a bridge nearby. But again, my heart is in the Green Mountains in Vermont. And so I can totally relate to that aspect of the song. But also just the sort of sheer delight and enthusiasm that that song expresses about the natural world. And that's exactly how I feel. Even when I'm not in Vermont, I feel the same way about these 900-year-old live oaks that are surrounding us with Spanish moss dripping off them. I feel the same way about the 300,000 acres of salt marsh that surround us here on the coast and the nine-foot tides and the right whales that come down here in the winter and the, the migratory birds that I get to work with. It's just amazing and staggering, and I feel privileged to be where I am, to be doing what I'm doing. And that song really taps into some of that. It's not necessarily scientific. It's just emotional attachment and enthusiasm and awe and humility before something that's really spectacular around us. The Trail Less Travel podcast is sponsored by Karuna Clothing. Sewn with love and laughter, Karuna Clothing is a handcrafted from natural fabrics which soften as they age. They design clothing lines to fit the moods of places which have inspired them. Designed simply and using the best fabrics, Karuna Clothing creates their own unique colours. Strong, well-sewn, small batch, unique product lines which are simply beautiful. Handmade in Missoula, Montana, all of Karuna Clothing is sewn and dyed in the US and all workers are paid good living wages. www.karunaclothing.com That's K-A-R-U-N-A clothing.com We're on location on the coast of Georgia, Brunswick, speaking with Tim Kyes, who is a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. Tim is an overall bird enthusiast and ornithologist. Now, Tim, we're sitting on the porch here, and I'd love for you to look around and open up your ears and eyes and tell us what you see and mainly what you hear. This would possibly be more activity earlier in the day. We're here in mid-afternoon, which is typically a fairly quiet time for birds, but immediately there's a cardinal chipping 20 feet off to our left here. They have a really distinctive, sharp chip note. It sounds like smacking two nickels together, and he's just been kind of going nonstop. We also have some flocks of blackbirds that are working the treetops probably. Mixed in with those are robins. On the coast of Georgia in winter, we typically get these roving bands of blackbirds, mixtures of grackles and red-winged blackbirds, uh, and robins that are feeding on berries and insects and seeds and things in the tops of these trees. So I'm hearing a little bit of that. I've also been hearing the calls of a Carolina wren, which is just sort of a whistle, descending whistle. And then some of the other resident songbirds, tufted titmouse has been squeaking. And uh, Grackle is making that harsh call that Robin just whinnied over there behind us. 
So definitely a lot going on, even for a very warm, sunny afternoon. Now, just sort of imagine being back here in spring and an early morning where you have all these birds that are resident birds as well as migrants that are coming out of South America and Florida and it can be overwhelming but wonderful. I remember going for a run in my neighborhood one morning and I got about 50 yards and I stopped running, ran back, got my binoculars and just birded for an hour because the trees were just full of full of birds singing. I think there had been a weather front that had stalled out the migrants and all of a sudden it cleared and boom they were they were there. Not a huge number of species right now, but definitely activity. And that's one of the great things about birds is basically anywhere you go in the world, at any time, you will be able to find birds. They're easier to find than the mammals, which are often nocturnal and very shy of people. You can throw up a bird feeder and bring them right to you. And a red-bellied woodpecker just called, another common resident here in Brunswick. The longer we sit here, the more things <laughs> the more things we'll hear. But we're basically in town, but the forests that we're in are the remnants of the maritime forest, which is really a fairly narrow strip of live oak-dominated forest that would have been on the immediate coast through the Carolinas and Georgia into Florida. It has a really charming feel to it. We've already mentioned the moss. The trees have resurrection fern growing up on them, which right now is lush and green because of the rain we've had recently but will just shrivel up and be dry and crispy during intervals where there's not much rain and the understory is often dominated by palmetto magnolias which of course in spring are spectacular and in fall are a wonderful fruit bearing tree for birds and a great place to look for migratory thrushes and things like that so really a magical place to be for birds really year-round. And I've lived in a lot of other places where there's plenty of birds, but this is where there's the most visible migration is just going on. Really most of the year there's something moving through, and a lot of them are very visible. Large birds, water birds, wading birds, ibis, wood storks, ducks. So there's really very, very few times a year where there's really not major bird movements going on. Tim, I'd like to now ask you about what you do as a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. As a biologist with Department of Natural Resources, we of course have limited staff and resources and there's a lot going on in the bird world, so we really focus on species of high conservation concern. We are involved in a number of different projects ranging from actual on-the-ground conservation, which can include protecting places that are important to birds. So uh, we work with wood storks, which are federally threatened species, and we'll work with private landowners to make sure that those wetlands where they nest are protected. They're not disturbed. Water levels are maintained adequately throughout the nesting season. For some of our high-priority beach-nesting birds, these are birds which just nest in these really precarious locations just above the high tide line on the coast of Georgia, and they can be seabirds or shorebirds, but they're really vulnerable to disturbance. So sometimes we are out posting and roping colonies of seabirds or important areas for nesting shorebirds just trying to keep people and dogs out of the middle of those important bird areas. So that's sort of direct conservation, sometimes actually land management. We do prescribed burning and in some places even herbiciding and scraping to make bare ground for beach nesting birds and seabirds. We also are involved with outreach and education, basically trying to get the public engaged in the birds here because then our whole job is a lot easier if we have an enthusiastic and passionate public who appreciates and takes pride in the native wildlife here and 
one of the main projects that I've been involved with with uh, education is a, a project I started actually this year was our 10th annual event and it's a youth birding competition. It came out of me being sick of complaining that I was the youngest person at our Audubon meetings. This was back when I worked in Atlanta area and so back then I was you know not particularly young. I was in my 30s and was still routinely the youngest person at the meetings. I was inspired by a, a 24-hour competitive birding event in Cape May, New Jersey called the World Series of Birding uh, that a friend invited me to participate in one year with him. And I was amazed at the number of kids' teams they had. And there were kids in elementary school and middle school and high school. And the high school teams were phenomenal. They were one of the high school teams came within about 10 species of winning the whole event, and this is against some of the top birders in the eastern U.S. So I came back to Georgia and started this event not knowing whether it would take off, whether we could find any kids that would be interested, wrote some grants to get some funds to start it. First year, we had about 60 kids, and it was great. And ever since, it's, it's grown. We average now about 100 kids a year. We've graduated kids that have gone on to study wildlife. They've gone on to become members in their local Audubon chapters, to become members of the Georgia Ornithological Society. We've had guest speakers come to our Ornithological Society meetings going, why are these kids here? Where, where do these come from? And invariably, they kind of got hooked on, on birds through the youth birding competition. So I'm a little bit ambivalent about just the obsessive listing element of birding, but it's a great hook to get kids interested and then hopefully generate a broader interest. And, and, and we try to encourage broader interest by having components to this and journaling components, as well as you know engaging some of these older kids with actual bird conservation efforts. So that's one part of my job that's more education related. We do engage with the permitting process sometimes. There's permit proposals to do things that may influence birds and so then we can wade in and and comment and sort of try to improve projects. In extreme cases try to stop projects from happening. Ourselves don't have any real authority to sort of stop a project so it's sort of a entering the debate and trying to trying to sway people. So you know, recently there was a proposal to put a wind turbine on Tybee Island in a place that I thought would really be undue risk of killing birds. It was very close to piping plover wintering habitat, and they're a federally endangered species, really close to a big oyster catcher roost. There were wood storks around there, and we made our case, and ultimately the turbine didn't go in. We didn't kill it by any means. There was other considerations, but I think we certainly provided a wildlife perspective on that. On that, Otherwise, I love the idea of alternative energies and renewable fuels, but that was one where I thought that the wildlife risk was too great. Uh, so we do wade into those issues. And then we do a fair amount of research. The research that we're engaged with is not sort of pure research that you would necessarily find in a more academic setting. We're trying to get answers to very, very concrete management questions. What are ways where we can concretely on the ground improve the situation for the birds that are our priority species? So a not necessarily very fun component of my job is dealing with bird predators like raccoons. And in some key areas, in some situations, if you don't work to control those predators, there will be no nesting success for the birds that we're trying to work with. So we don't go out there and willy-nilly try and trap or shoot raccoons. We do it in a framework where we're actually generating data and analyzing it in a way that we can then determine, is this really necessary? Are we really providing benefit to the birds? And what's the bare minimum we can do 
and still get the effect that we want. So th those are so the sorts of research questions that we engage with. And, and typically, we would partner with universities to help with the analysis and design and all that on, on those sorts of projects. So direct land conservation, education, and research are sort of three main components of my job. The species I work with, I've mentioned some of them already, but wood stork, which is a federally threatened species, a lot of shorebirds, which are either nesting on our coast, like American oyster catcher and Wilson's plover. Most of our shorebirds are migrants, and they're breeding in the high Arctic, and they're coming either just passing through on their way down to South America, or they're overwintering here. And so for those birds, there's different challenges, different things we can do. And a lot of it is just monitoring populations. And those are typically plugged into larger monitoring efforts up and down the whole East Coast. There's certain shorebird monitoring protocols that we're part of, and our data is going into larger databases that, that kind of try and track these species at a really at an international level because they don't know any borders they can take off from the coast of Georgia and in three days be in the high Arctic or in three days be in the mouth of the Amazon. And, and we, we've had the pleasure to do some satellite tracking of birds and, and to really witness that exact thing. Some of the other species we work with, really spectacular bird, the uh, swallowtailed kite. It's a bird of prey, primarily an aerial insect eater, but also plucks frogs and snakes out of trees. And they nest in our coastal rivers primarily, mostly in Brazil right now, overwintering. So we work with private landowners where we've got important populations. We do some satellite tracking with other partners on swallowtail kites to sort of see what parts of their migration might be real bottlenecks, real uh, highest risks for them throughout their annual cycle. And then we do just basic monitoring of nests, searching for nests, monitoring nests, seeing how their productivity is going. Uh, what are the concrete things we could do, like putting predator guards on trees, on nest trees, for instance, if predation rates are really high. In winter here, one of the real fun groups I've worked with are sparrows, which may send a shudder down your spine if you're not a birder. They're, you know, many of them look fairly similar, small brown birds, but they're wonderful, a wonderful group that I really enjoy working with. And in our salt marshes in winter, we get tens of thousands of wintering sparrows, mostly of three or four different species. So there's two species that I work with primarily, and this is one of the really, really fun things we get to do is go out and try and catch these birds with mist nets. So we wait for really high tides when these birds are kind of pushed up against the edges of the marsh, and then we set nets perpendicular to those edges and then get a bunch of people basically driving it's a great sparrow drive <laughs> driving birds down the edge of the marsh into our nets and sometimes we literally we've we have come close to knocking over mist nets with sparrows and these are birds which weigh well depending on the species anywhere from eight or nine to 18 to 20 grams so they're tiny little birds but you can just have this roiling mass of birds ahead of you in the in the reeds and really the thing we have to be careful of is we don't put too many birds into the net that we can safely process and, and band and release we've caught birds here that were banded originally in vermont we've banded birds here that have been recaptured in Connecticut. We're learning both how these birds are using our coast when they're here. We're learning whether they're site faithful every winter. Do those same birds come back to the same place? Uh, and this is much harder to do, but we're learning where they go off-site. And that's just through a few recaptures. These birds are too small to put on transmitters, um, at this point anyway. So it really depends on other people catching our birds elsewhere, which is a very, very 
unlikely thing to happen. But we have that one and uh, up in Connecticut, which was really cool. Larger birds were able to put transmitters on. Two weeks ago, caught a long-billed curlew, which is the largest shorebird in North America. Quite probably the first long-billed curlew on the Atlantic coast to be tagged with a satellite transmitter. And this was part of a project with Smithsonian Institute. And so we helped them catch and, and put a transmitter on that bird. And, and it will be really interesting that the eastern, the Atlantic coast of the U.S. used to have thousands of wintering long-billed curlews. And now there's probably less than 200 in the whole Atlantic coast. It's unclear where those birds breed. There's a couple of different breeding populations in the west, including Montana. So who knows, this bird could wind up in your backyard <laughs> at some point in the spring. It's really exciting work, but it is also really driven by real conservation questions. So we've worked a lot with Wimbrel, which are a long-distance Arctic nesting migrant that winters in South America. There's several breeding populations in the Arctic. We had no idea which population our local birds that come through in spring belong to. We've wound up putting a lot of satellite transmitters on them, figuring out where they go, but also really, really realizing that in the, even though these birds are traveling tens of thousands of miles a year, they're really keying in on about four different locations in that whole annual life cycle. They're very site faithful to those locations, and some of them are really used by a lot of a lot of individuals. It really focuses your conservation efforts on when these birds are in Georgia, what is the critical thing. And for, for us in Georgia, it's these little offshore sandbars where they roost at night. So they, they'll fly 30 or 40 miles every night just to get to these little sandbars to roost, where presumably there's less pressure, there's less disturbance from predators, great horned owls, whatever else is harassing them on the marsh. The other really sad but important thing we've learned is the degree of hunting in the Caribbean on shorebirds. We lost two birds within a few days of each other to hunters in the Caribbean. And what was amazing about that is there were school children from 12 different countries following these birds because you could follow them in, in real time. We have all the data online. And the country was swamped with letters from school children around the world encouraging them to control the unmanaged hunting of shorebirds. And it actually has led to funding to hire biologists, collaborative partnerships to work with local wildlife agencies in the Caribbean to try and develop basically guidelines for hunting species which shouldn't be hunted and numbers that shouldn't be taken. So despite the fact that it was tragic and heartbreaking, thinking of this bird leaving the Arctic flying nonstop day and night for three days, four days, and then immediately being shot as soon as it landed. It actually has led to really important progress on the conservation effort and, and grappling with hunting in the Caribbean. So those are the unexpected but really valuable components that can come out of some of our work. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested outdoor adventure series. We are on location on the Georgia coast, and I am speaking with Tim Kyes. He is a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal, non-game birds. Tim, I'd like to play a song now. Let's play a song that reminds you of all the things that you love. This song is a song by Greg Brown called Spring Wind, and it's a wonderful song. <laughs> of course, I wouldn't have chosen it otherwise. <laughs> but it's sort of a rambling song that talks about love, obviously the love of his spouse. Then eventually you find out later in the song that there's kids involved and the 
love of his kids even when they're sad and happy. There's also in the middle there, there's his love of fishing and the sadness he feels at seeing the polluted rivers where he's trying to fish and how that is then leads him to really wanting to as he says, put his shoulder to the wheel and really make a difference in cleaning up the rivers that he's passionate about. There are actually even birds in this song. Love calls like the wild birds, so that's a nice plus as well. It's a great song that really speaks to me about the core loves in my life from wife to children to environment and that those are all really part of the same thing for me. I I don't necessarily dissect all those out into very discrete elements of my life. They're all part of who I am and what I'm passionate about and it would be hard to separate, so I hope you all enjoy it. (laughs) You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled. We are on the coast of Georgia, Brunswick, and I'm speaking with Tim Kyes. Tim is a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. He is an overall bird enthusiast and ornithologist. Tim, now I'd like to ask you about the evolution of birds. And some paleontologists think that dinosaurs evolved into birds. So I'm curious about what you think about that. First of all, a fascinating question and well outside my realm of expertise. But I have tried to read some of the competing views on bird evolution and whether they were in some line of pteropod dinosaurs. As I understand it, the leading opinion among paleontologists is that birds did evolve from a line of pteropod dinosaurs. It sounds plausible to me, but then I'll go and read, you know, Alan Fiducio is one of the scientists who has a different opinion on that, and I read his arguments, and wow, that sounds kind of plausible. So I'm in a position where I don't really know the paleontology. I probably would go with the majority opinion on that, and of course it, it makes my job that much more glamorous to be actually studying feathered dinosaurs that actually survived. The discussions get fairly technical about bone structures, and the one that comes to mind is foot structure. And one of the critiques of the pteropod dinosaur line is that the toe structure would have had to actually change quite dramatically, toes rotating around the foot uh, in, a, in a way that seemed sort of implausible or unlikely or, or, or whatnot. The weight of the evidence from analyzing the development of bones of dinosaurs through birds seem to point to they coming from pteropod dinosaurs but there's definitely as in many fields of science I think there's still unanswered questions and there's not necessarily neat packages that everything falls right into and of course you're dealing with an imperfect fossil record one of the wonderful things about birds their adaptation for flight actually means that their bones don't preserve very well because they're very lightweight. They're generally hollow or filled with sort of spongy bone, unlike mammal bones. So they're a lot less likely to preserve long term. So compared to some very neat evolutionary lines like with horses, there's not that beautiful a lineup with the evolution of birds. For whatever reason, probably in part because of this bone structure question, it points to one of the really amazing adaptations that's made flight possible. Let's talk about flight and how a bird does it. Birds have different types of feathers. The feathers have different names and different textures. So let's talk about that. Sure. One of my favorite things to talk about. So I usually think of this in two parts. One is the constraint of flight. And then the second is the freedom of flight. 
structurally, physically, flight places tremendous constraints on any animal based on weight, on balance. Every element of that bird's skeleton, their physiology, their anatomy is altered in order to get off the ground. So looking at birds, they have no teeth. Well, teeth are heavy, you know, by volume, they're the heaviest part of our body. But probably more importantly, birds with long necks with a mouthful of teeth would be unstable balance-wise. You'd need to counterweight your teeth with something else further back in your body. So birds that require really the grinding action of teeth instead have a gizzard where they actually swallow small stones to grind up their food. But that's centrally located directly between the wings. And so even though you have the additional weight of those stones that do the work of teeth, you don't have the counterbalance issue of having something very heavy way out in front of your wings. If you look at the skeletal structure of birds, the general sort of five-fingered limb, pentadactyl limb, which is common among all our vertebrate mammals, is simplified. So there's fewer fingers. Some of those fingers are fused, and that's clearly to basically reduce their weight. You look at the bones themselves. We mentioned that most flying birds their bones are hollow. Now there's some diving birds that really require that extra weight, like a diver needs a weight belt, and their bones are not hollow. And many of our flightless birds, like ostriches, their bones are not hollow. But for those birds that are trying to get off the ground, again, the constraint of weight and weight reduction has led to these hollow bones, simplification of bone systems, and fusing of certain parts of the skeleton. And that's really an interesting one, because to generate the power for flight, you need these massive flight muscles, which are centrally located, and they're attached to the sternum. And if you've carved a turkey or chicken, you know exactly what we're talking about. You've got this unique projection on a bird's sternum called a keel, which is the little bone that you carve, you know, on either side of on the chicken or turkey breast. When that bird's flying, the whole rib cage, the whole body cavity of that bird needs to be completely rigid, or all of that energy, when those wings flap and those muscles contract would be absorbed in the body cavity and not translated into into powered flight. So uh, in order to generate that power, you have these massive muscles, but you also need a more rigid body cavity. So birds, when they breathe, their ribs don't expand and contract like ours. Their ribs are really fused and which leads to an entirely different system of lungs than ours. Their lungs are much smaller and much more efficient than ours. So when we breathe in and out, we take about 30% of the oxygen out of that air that we breathe. Birds are taking more like 90% out. Their lungs are pass-through lungs, so air flows in a continuous flow in one side of the lung and out the other side of the lung, and that's basically because their whole respiratory system is a series of bellows where they inhale one sort of packet of air. It doesn't go right into their lungs. It goes into an air sac that then is pumped into the lung with the next exhale. And so what it means is that even as the bird is exhaling, there's a constantly fresh air flowing through the lungs and extracting that oxygen, which is required for the tremendous physical exertion of flight. We've talked about weight loss, the rigidness of the body cavity, the efficiency of the lungs. The bird's body temperature is higher than ours, which increases their nervous system transmission speed, so their reflexes are quicker, their muscles can contract faster and with more power. Downside, of course, is they have to eat more to maintain that higher body temperature, but they're routinely, when they're flying around, their body temperature can be 104, 105, 106 degrees, temperatures that would be dangerous for humans. You know, a reproductive system for a bird is 
99% of the time a complete waste of weight and space. So birds have reproductive systems that essentially shrivel down to almost nothing during the parts of the year when they're not reproductively active. Female birds have one ovary. Male birds, their testes basically shrivel up to nothing during, during the non-breeding season and then expand dramatically when breeding. Um, so again, you can literally look at every different organ system and see the constraints that flight has placed on birds. The wonderful thing, though, is once they're able to actually get off the ground, once all those physical constraints are in place, they can go anywhere. Physical space is almost non-relevant to some birds. As long as they've got good food resources and reasonable weather, we have birds that can fly from Alaska to New Zealand nonstop. They don't land on the water. They don't feed. Their entire digestive system atrophies right before they take off. Before they take off, they come close to doubling their body weight. So just, you know, put yourself in that position. I'm a roughly 200-pound male. If I had to double my body weight, get myself up to 400 pounds, and then run, fly nonstop for five days and nights, absolutely incredible. What they're actually able to do once these constraints of flight have been met is really staggering. And it raises all sorts of other questions like, okay, you can do that physically, but how do you navigate? How do you find your way? This is a fascinating field of orientation and navigation. And there's basically evidence that birds use celestial navigation just like sailors do and not in the exact same way. They really key in on the parts of the sky where the stars move the least. So the clusters around the North Star in the Northern Hemisphere and in the Southern Hemisphere, there's other clusters of stars around in line with the South Pole. You can monkey with birds in all sorts of settings to figure out what their physical cues are that they're picking up on in the environment. So people have taken birds into planetariums. And during spring migration, these birds that are migratory exhibit what's a German word, I believe, Zugenru, which is migration restlessness. And it's basically they hop in the direction that they would like to fly if they were able to fly. And you can quantify this with little ink pads and paper cones around their cage. And so you can basically generate vectors for the direction that the bird is trying to go in. And so you can put them in a planetarium and rotate the night sky as it normally is and see what direction they'd go and then spin the night sky around and they change direction and go the other way. Similar studies have been done looking at magnetism and proving that many birds can sense the Earth's magnetic field and they use that for navigation. They can use polarized light. Of course, there's birds which use rivers and coastlines and mountain ranges sort of as their highways. What's most amazing with some of these shorebirds and seabirds is that it's not learned. This is innate behavior. Many wading birds, ducks, geese, cranes, it's a learned behavior. The young birds follow adult birds. They fly in flocks. This is why probably seen or heard about retraining whooping cranes to fly their migration route. And people dress up as cranes and they fly ultralights that look like cranes. They take the young ones on the route the first time because otherwise they'd have no idea where to go. Here in Georgia, studying Arctic nesting shorebirds, our first southbound shorebirds arrive in late July and August after already having nested. They're all adults. The adults have left the Arctic with their kids behind. So those chicks that have just hatched, five or six weeks later, they're migrating with no adults, and they do it. And some of these birds are going all the way down to southern South America. So somehow that is innately passed on, and and I wish I could explain it well, because or, or explain how it works, 
because it's absolutely stunning. If you look at migratory birds, there's a whole range of ability. There are birds that, you know, have been experimentally have been removed from their nests in the northern Great Britain and dropped in Boston Harbor, and then three days later they're back on their nest and they've never been to Boston Harbor before. So it raises really interesting questions about it's not just an ability to have a compass and point north, south, east, west. It's really you need a mental map. Imagine you're the bird in this experiment. You're essentially abducted by aliens. You're removed some unknown distance and dropped somewhere else. But if you're given a compass, so what? Unless you have a map to use, you have no idea where to go. So many birds not only have these elaborate compasses, which they can use through celestial navigation or magnetic fields, but they also have some form of map where they can place themselves in relationship to where they need to go. And that, I think, is the least understood component of this whole navigation and orientation field and very interesting but really hard to get your mind around. It's clear that some birds can do it, some birds can't. Sometimes the ability improves with age. You know, first-year birds are great at following a single compass bearing, but if they're translocated one way or the other, they just stay on the same course, whereas birds that are older are able to compensate for that shift. So pretty amazing stuff that they're able to do. Considering how easily we get lost just bumbling around our neighborhoods, it's, it's, uh, it's humbling that these birds that weigh you know, 15 or 20 grams are able to navigate our world so much more efficiently than we can. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled on The Trail 103.3. We are in the studio with Tim Kyes. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. Tim, I'd like to ask you about swifts and their formation of their feet in relation to what they spend their time doing, most of their time in the air and then, you know, like you said, clinging to the side of cliffs. Swifts are wonderful birds that you virtually never see perched uh, unless they've somehow fallen down your chimney if you have them nesting in your chimney, which we have in the, in the eastern United States. But they've got very, very small feet. They're essentially designed for constant flight. They're aerial insectivores, so they're grabbing bugs out of the air. If you had one in hand, its bill would look like a tiny little stubby bill coming out of some bristly feathers in its face. But if you were actually to open the mouth, it would have an amazingly wide base. And so they actually really have this huge mouth for catching flying insects and really specialized bristle feathers around the mouth, which many insect eaters have that help them to to catch them in the air. But their feet are tiny, poorly developed, and essentially they can cling to the sides of cliffs or chimneys. Historically in the east, they would have nested in tree cavities where they build their little stick nests that are literally attached to the sides of cliffs with saliva that hardens that's where they lay their eggs. In the eastern United States, we certainly have them nesting in people's chimneys, and often we get calls from folks hearing weird squeaking noises in their chimney, which is often usually the begging chicks. Or if for some reason the nest falls, you all of a sudden have a little nest with some, some hatchlings in the bottom of your fireplace. Definitely a bird that is so specialized at flying, it almost can't perch. I'd also like to ask you about cormorants and other birds that get the best of all three worlds, it seems like. And they can fly, they can be on land, and then they can also fly underwater. How does that work? And also, how long does it take for them to dry their feathers out after they've been swimming before they can fly again? Great questions. Birds that specialize in swimming and diving, there are trade-offs. So really specialized diving birds 
are usually fairly clumsy on land, and that's because their legs are really placed far back on their body. Loons are a classic example, similar to cormorants in their behavior, even less able to waddle around on land. They basically have to rest on their belly and push themselves along. But underwater, they're incredible swimmers. Loons would swim with their legs, but there are birds that swim, that basically essentially fly underwater with their wings. Cormorants, whole group of birds called alcids, which the most famous would be the puffins, but include guillemots and razorbills and murres and dovekey. But if you're in a position to be, a, and I've seen this, looking down from a cliff into birds on the water, you'll see them dive and you'll see their wings flapping as they go underwater. It's one of those things that there's trade-offs to be a real aerialist specialist on the wing you often have some trade-offs for your perching abilities. If you're a real diver and specialize in diving, there's usually trade-offs in your ability to fly. The, the obvious example where it's gone the farthest would be the penguins that have entirely lost their ability to fly but are just spectacular swimmers underwater. So we have a number that are able to carry out all three, you know, terrestrial flying and swimming, but usually they specialize in, in one or the other, and you can see that they've paid a price either with leg placement or wing size. Our real diving birds, their wings tend to be quite small. So when you watch puffins and other alcids in flight, they really have to work pretty hard to keep aloft. If you look at the, ex the other extreme, flyers like seabirds, albatross, that may go for days without ever alighting on the water. They've got these just massive long, long wings. Very clumsy on land, not good at diving. But yeah, they have to have their own little runways to take off. But once they're off, they're absolutely spectacular. And one of the neat things with albatross, at least in the United States, if you go to the west coast of Northern California or Washington, Oregon, in summer, you'll see black-footed albatross foraging near shore. You don't have to go very far off to see these birds. They are collecting food to feed chicks that are in the western Hawaiian archipelago. Their commute between their nest and their feeding grounds can take two weeks for them to do that. It's absolutely stunning. Their ability to travel those distances at sea, again, raises all sorts of wonderful questions about navigating at sea, where you really have very little landmarks to go by. Many of the seabirds, actually, they're obviously not carrying around whole fish for weeks on end. So many of like our seabirds here, many of our terns and gulls, their adults are flying several miles, catching a fish, bringing it back, and giving it to their young. These seabirds, like albatross, they actually produce an oil that they then are able to basically jet into the mouth of their chicks. Incredibly fatty, rich oil. That's basically their way of translating their food from fish or squid, many of them squid eaters, to food for their chicks. Obviously, they can't do that when the chicks are really young, but as the chicks get larger and they're able to go a full week between feedings, then the adults would stagger these two-week flights, and so the chick would be fed about once a week. Very, very rich in protein and fat diet from this oil that seabirds produce. The wandering albatross is my favorite bird. One question I'm curious about is exactly how high can they fly? Well, I can't answer directly about the altitude that albatross fly. I don't associate albatross and other seabirds with really getting 
to high altitudes, but many birds do. And uh, typically during long distance migratory flights, there's a number of reasons to get higher. One, it, the air is cooler and you don't have to worry about overheating, which is an issue for a fully feathered animal that can't sweat. Even in very cold environments, birds are often more at risk of overheating through the exertion of flight than they are of being too cold. So some birds like swans, I think, have been recorded at flying over 30,000 feet. There's bar-headed geese, which fly over the Himalayas every year in their migratory flights. And obviously the geese have to get over mountains to get to where they're going. So they obviously have to either fly way around or, or go high. Some of the waterfowl are basically trying to get into the jet stream. If you're a goose or a swan, your ground speed in normal flight might be 50 or 60 miles per hour. But if you can get up high enough up into the jet stream, that's typically an air mass is moving about 100 miles an hour. So all of a sudden your ground speed is tripled and the energy that you need to exert for your migration is cut dramatically. So a number of, especially geese and swans, have been documented well over 30,000 feet. Now, most of our songbirds are flying lower than that, and it depends on whether they're doing really long-distance migratory flights over water, but many in the, you know, several thousand feet up, unless they're sort of brought down by inclement weather. Albatross, I'm not sure how high they go. Again, I think of them as dynamic soaring birds where they're able to travel great distances without ever flapping because they're able to catch even very small updrafts of air that are associated with waves and wind. So albatross and many other seabirds actually thrive in windy oceans where they're able to basically surf the lift that's coming off of waves in a windy environment. I mean, one of the reasons we very rarely get albatross in the northern hemisphere, except for the few species that breed in the northern hemisphere, is that to get here, they'd have to traverse the doldrums, the middle latitudes of the globe, where typically it's not very windy. And so albatross with no wind, as I understand it, are stranded. They don't fly very well if there's not a good wind. So you think about albatross taking off on land, we talked about their little runways where they have to build up speed to head into the wind and get enough lift to get their big bodies off the ground. If you put a sitting albatross in a flat calm sea with no wind, I'm not sure that they can take off. I'd like to ask you about the magnificent fricket bird and why their tail is shaped as it is. And then also I'd like to ask you about the harlequin duck and the dipper. So the dipper is actually a songbird, and the harlequin duck is obviously a duck, but both of them share a love or and an ability to handle sort of roaring rapids and rivers. The dipper is perhaps most unique in that most songbirds don't have really affinity for swimming at all, uh, and yet this is a songbird that can swim underwater in raging rapids. It feeds looking for aquatic invertebrates in the stones and the pebbles in, in rapidly moving rivers and it actually builds nests oftentimes kind of behind waterfalls or on rocky ledges and cliffs right in the middle of the stream which would again be a great anti-predator defense as long as you don't flood out you know in, in a big storm event but wonderful birds john muir's favorite bird and back in his day they were called oozles O-U-Z-E-L, which is a wonderful, wonderful word. Uh, actually, my canoe is named the Oozle. Nice. Uh, but uh, harlequin ducks are similar in their ability to navigate real rapids, and they are also just one of the more spectacularly colored ducks, as their name suggests. They sort of have this harlequin pattern of, of red and white and 
dark purpley blue. A couple times they've turned up in Georgia. Unfortunately, we're very far south of their normal range. So where I've seen them has been in the northeast on the rocky coasts of Maine and Massachusetts. But for those of you out west, you're in the land of the Dipper. We don't have them in the east, unfortunately. They're a wonderful bird to watch, hopping around on the rocks, diving in and out of the water, bringing wads of moss back to construct their nests. And I remember watching them while backpacking in California, and the snow was still completely covering the ground, and these guys were building nests in the rivers with the snow melt still coming, but presumably able to predict how high that water would come. And so the frigate bird is one of these incredible aerialists. They're piratic, which means that they predominantly steal food from other seabirds. So they routinely chase smaller birds like tropic birds, gulls, terns, boobies, and they're designed for aerial acrobatics. Their wings are very, very long, narrow, and pointed, and their tail is very, very forked and long. And so that just gives them sort of, if you think about an airplane able to control its flight with the tilting, its flaps and all that, they've got sort of the ultimate flaps. So they can just really, really chase birds with amazing aerial coordination and speed and, and typically catch the food that's regurgitated by, their, by the other birds before it hits the ground. Also amazing birds and the males have this huge, brilliant red pouch that they inflate during the mating season. So... In Georgia, the equivalent would be a jacked-up pickup truck, but that's what they've got, the big red balloon on their chest, and they inflate it, and they try and impress the females that way. We don't get them here in Georgia very often. I've seen them a couple times on the coast. Typically, they're driven in by storms. So any big storm that with a lot of offshore wind, we start looking for interesting seabirds, and frigate bird is one of them. That It can turn up on the coast or way up in, in interior lakes in the interior part of the state. I'm just wondering, do all birds use thermals? Not all birds use thermals. Those that can, can save tremendous amount of energy. So just to compare two otherwise similar species here on the coast, we've got wood storks, which are a large wading bird that routinely uses thermals. And so they've been documented foraging up to 70 kilometers from their nesting territory because they'll wait for the day to warm up. They'll wait for a thermal to develop. They'll catch the thermal, ride it up a few thousand feet, set their wings and just glide. So basically expending almost no energy, they can go 20, 30, 40 kilometers to a good foraging area, feed, and then do the reverse and come back. Many of the other wading birds don't use thermals at all. So great egret, another large wading bird, it basically actively flies wherever it needs to go. So its potential range that it has available to it for foraging when it's feeding chicks is a lot smaller, and it has to expend a lot more energy to do that. Sort of the classic soaring birds are birds of prey, and there are birds that migrate from North America all the way down to South America using relatively little energy because they're catching thermals the whole way. It's one of the reasons that many of these birds stay over land all the time because thermals don't really generate over the ocean. So you get these tremendous, tremendous migratory corridors coming down into Mexico and Central America where all these soaring birds basically are funneling down from the vast northern continent through these very small countries like Panama and just tremendous numbers. And you, you can actually watch across the horizon birds rising up in one column of air and then just gliding to the next one. And, and they, of course, are seeing the thermals ahead of them by the birds that are in them. 
So it's a, it's a great way to greatly reduce the energy you have to expend to fly. There are plenty of birds that just their wing structure can't generate enough lift. They have to actively fly. And it's again, it's one of these trade-offs. You know, think back to the puffins. You're not going to see <laughs> puffins, which are a little cannonball bird with short wings, small wings, just don't have the capacity. They couldn't generate the lift to keep their body off the ground without constantly flapping. Peregrine falcons, which can catch thermals, but also are capable of powered flight straight across the Gulf of Mexico and don't bother necessarily going all the way around. A lot of the birds of prey would prefer to stay over land using thermals and and conserving energy. I'd like to talk to you about egg shapes and why eggs are shaped differently. For example, there are some birds in the Bering Sea, their eggs are shaped so that they can't roll out of the nest. Let's talk about that. Eggs are absolutely wonderful marvels. The coloration, the pattern, the shape. I, of course, disagree with the early egg collectors in that there really was some conservation impacts to collecting eggs, but I can really see the appeal because they're such absolutely beautiful, spectacular things. They're often very specifically adapted, whether by coloration or by shape, to where the adults are nesting. Cavity nesters often have very pale white eggs. They're not visible because they're in a cavity, so they don't need to be camouflaged. But most birds that are nesting out in the open, their eggs are camouflaged to one degree or another. When the bird leaves the nest, they don't want the eggs to be glowing white chicken eggs out there for everything to see. So on our coast, for instance, most of our seabirds and shorebirds nest right on the sand, and their eggs essentially almost disappear into sand or shell that they're nesting on. of the interesting differences in shape are cliff nesting birds obviously would concern would be that those eggs would sort of roll off a cliff if you take a chicken egg on a table and kind of give it a little push it will roll for a long way kind of weaving its way around this would be very ineffective strategy to have an egg like a chicken egg if you're nesting on a narrow ledge and so a lot of the seabirds like the alcids, the ones that uh, some of these pelagic seabirds have really much more conical shaped eggs. So they actually would roll in a very, very tight spiral and decrease the chance that just they accidentally are knocked off a ledge because they're more likely to just spin almost in place. Again, they're adapted very much by color and shape to the environment that the adult lays them in. And that's just sort of one of the really cool examples of dramatically different egg shapes. You're listening to The Trail Less Traveled on The Trail 103.3. We're speaking with Tim Kyes. He's a wildlife biologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. Last bird question is eyes. Uh, Everything from an owl being able to see a little mouse in the grass at night to pelicans that can see a fish five feet below the surface to how that term comes in, how you have eyes like a hawk. Sure. Birds are predominantly visual animals. They typically have very poor senses of smell, although there are exceptions. Birds like vultures that feed on carrion, some of them actually have very acute sense of smell. But most birds really depend on their eyesight for finding food, for everything that they do in life. And those eyes are going to be specialized depending on whether these birds are nocturnal or diurnal. Most nocturnal birds are going to have much larger eyes. So think of the owls and the night hawks, the night jars. Their eyes are very large. If you actually look at the inside of their eyes, they actually don't have very many cones. Rods and cones are the two cells on the retina of your eye, and cones are basically what allow us to see in color. But cones don't function very well in low light. So in order to improve their ability to see in the dark, they've got 
almost no cones, almost all rods. And then they also, having the larger eyes, they're actually able to bring in more light. And comparing bird eyes to human eyes, the density of those cells in, in their eyes are much higher. So they often have greater visual acuity, can see in greater detail, and see in lower light conditions. The shape of some bird's eyes is actually more tubular. They're not perfectly spherical eyeballs, slightly stretched out, which actually apparently allows for some magnification on the back of the eye so the, the light that travels through the lens basically it's like moving the movie screen further away from the projector the image is larger and and with the density of cells there to read that incoming light you end up having finer acuity and, and a, a larger image to see the the night birds again have fewer cones more rods larger eyes the birds that are out and about in the daytime typically see in color very well uh, certainly the songbirds, you can tell by looking at songbirds, the males are often beautifully colored to attract the females, so they're, of course, able to fully see in color. And in some cases, they're actually able to see beyond the visible spectrum. So there's evidence that some birds are able to see in the ultraviolet spectrum as well. And there's some bird feathers that reflect in the ultraviolet spectrum. So they see each other in a very different way than we see them. And also, they see the world differently. Kestrels, for instance, can see nitrogen from small mammal urine just sort of glows in the ultraviolet spectrum. So for them, sitting up on a wire, looking down, they can actually see much more than we can about where the small mammals are traveling, where the little pathways are, and of course it helps them tremendously with their hunting. Very, very sight-oriented animals. For the most part, poor sense of smell, with some exceptions. And then, in some cases, really specially adapted hearing as well. And, and some of the nocturnal birds are good examples of that. Owls with much larger ears and the ability to funnel sound to their ears with their feathers, those big facial discs. Sort of the best examples would be some of the owls like you'd have in Montana, great gray owls that are able to hunt field mice and voles under a snowpack entirely by sound, telling where they are and dropping right down in the snow and grabbing them, which is a wonderful thing to watch. I, I wish I, I'm looking forward to actually seeing it. I've seen video of it, but looking forward to seeing it. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for meeting with me today in Georgia and talking to me about birds. My pleasure. You never have to twist my arm to talk about birds. <laughs> Tim, let's end this show with three outdoor adventure tips. All right. Three outdoor adventure tips. Know your tides. Of course, that's specific if you're on the coast. Awfully easy to run into trouble if you haven't checked your tide charts on the coast and either get stuck or start hitting things which you didn't think you should be hitting. Know where you are and how to read a map without a GPS. So use a GPS, use the technology that's available to you, but be able to find your way when it dies. Map reading is a great skill and a lot of fun, so learn how to do it without a GPS. Last, don't trust your wife to pack the alcohol on a backpacking trip. <laughs> Very bad experience with Goldschlager that I don't know why she brought, but... <laughs> awesome. Tim, what song would you like to end the show? Well, this was a hard one, but it has to be a Bob Dylan song, since I grew up with parents obsessed with Bob Dylan, and I didn't rebel against that part of my parenting, at least, and have continued to love Bob Dylan ever since. And so just a beautiful Dylan song to end with would be Every Grain of Sand, which is sort of about the humility in the face of the amazing world that we live in, and the, that world sort of pointing to something bigger than ourselves and beyond itself even. Namaste Missoula, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. 
an adventure series dedicated to collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the world. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. And visit traillesstravel.net to see pictures, archive previous episodes, or contact me. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, featuring Tim Kyes, a wildlife biologist and ornithologist with the Georgia Department of Natural Resources. Tim's focus is coastal non-game birds. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for this show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. Trailless Travel is the community's source for adventure information and inspiration, Sunday nights at 6. My adventure tip this week is to check your shoes before slipping them on when traveling in parts of the world where poisonous critters could crawl into your shoe for a wee nap. One time in Kenya, I was bitten by a large spider after forgetting to tap my shoes out before putting them on. Well, that's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get out there and shred the gnar. Because, as you know, the gnar doesn't shred itself. <laughs>